This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Depending on where you're listening, you may or may not have dined out or gotten that much-needed haircut at this point. Your patients may or may not be starting to come in for elective procedures. But wherever you are, your organization has undoubtedly discussed how and when to take steps to reopen and what reopening means for you. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Terry Hush of Roji Health Intelligence about what patients should know about reopening and how healthcare organizations should already be planning for future waves of the coronavirus. All that's coming up after we go Beyond the News. Hello, this is Rich Daly, Senior Writer and Editor for HFMA. Hi, this is Chad Mulvaney, a Policy Director with HFMA. Thanks for joining us once again on Beyond the News, the segment of the podcast where we take a quick look behind recent news developments and check their significance. Chad, thank you for joining us because we did want to get up to speed with your insights on the CARES Act's expansion of Medicare's accelerated and advanced payment programs. This expansion opened it up to a much larger group of Medicare Part A and Part B providers and suppliers. And the program has loaned so far $100 billion to 45,000 hospitals, physicians, and other providers, and made average payments of $2.22 million per recipient. The catch, of course, is that emerging concerns have focused on the ability of some recipients, particularly independent physician practices and previously financially vulnerable smaller hospitals, to repay these loans. So what's the lay of the land on, the, on this program, Chad? What's our challenge here? My understanding of the provision was that it was Congress's intent to provide a temporary liquidity vehicle or bridge financing to hospitals and physician practices, particularly those who, as you think about kind of the in early March, mid-March, late March, as financial markets were starting to sort of seize up in some corners, particularly for providers without strong balance sheets, a, a way to kind of manage through the crisis so that they wouldn't have to shut their doors. And that then the, the CARES Act funding and also the subsequent funding would be used to repay those loans. The challenge is, though, is as you pointed out at the top, so $100 billion spread out to 45,000 providers. We've now got $175 billion in provider relief fund that's now being spread out to at least 179,000 providers. So you start to do the averages on this. The average CARES Act provider relief fund distribution is about $975,000. The average amount that somebody, as you mentioned, has to repay through the accelerated or advanced payment program is $2.2 million. Got a gap there that you're going to have to pay back to CMS of about $1.25 million that pretty quickly you're going to have to make up on volume from providing delayed services if the terms of the program aren't relaxed in some way, shape, or form. And it's probably not going to be possible for a lot of organizations that don't have deep balance sheets and access to other financing. The repayments, uh, I guess it's a multi-step 
process within that too. So uh, you've got an initial repayment period and then you've got if Medicare can't recoup everything they advance to you, then they're going to implement a uh, interest rate on this on these loans, right? Correct. And also, to a certain extent, depends on who you are. The terms for hospitals are a little different because of the CARES Act and the terms for physicians and other providers. And so both have 120 days before CMS starts to recoup 100% of their or start to recoup the loan by withholding 100% of their Medicare claims that they're being processed. And so just kind of given that CMS froze the program at the end of April, April 27th, the absolute sort of latest date that we're back at the enveloping it for recoupment to begin for anybody who received this loan is somewhere around August 24th. From there, if you're a physician practice, you'll have 210 days to pay it back before CMS issues a demand letter and starts applying interest to whatever the remaining balance is. So think about it right around November 23rd of this year, you would get hit with that. If you're a hospital, you've got 365 days. So the absolute sort of latest date for you to get hit with your demand letter would be April 27th of next year. As I mentioned earlier, in order for you to kind of make up that difference, you're going to have to sort of catch up on the volume of delayed and deferred services. And I'm not sure that the assumptions is is accurate that all providers will be able to do that. So, of course, we want to find out uh, how this could be addressed. Uh, Theoretically, is this administratively uh, fixable or or is this going to require Congress? I think probably the best solution would require Congress. We believe that while the $175 billion in relief funding that Congress has provided hospitals, physicians, and other groups so far has been necessary, it hasn't been sufficient. And so we think one way for Congress to square that circle would be to simply forgive those dollars or the the $100 billion in uh, accelerator advance payments from CMS. If Congress elects not to do that, then I think the the most logical thing for them to do would be to provide instruction to CMS to relax the terms. So to allow a longer period of time before recoupment begins. So maybe a year or more before CMS actually starts withholding from claims. Reduce the amount that CMS withholds from claims to, you know, from 100% now as it's as it's described down to maybe 25% or less to allow providers more time to pay the loan back before they get hit with a demand letter and the application of interest. So right now, the absolute longest period of time for hospitals is 12 months. Maybe for both physicians, hospitals, and other providers, extend that to as long as 36 months or more. And then also, if Congress does decide to apply interest, we would suggest maybe that they not But if they do reduce the interest rate from 9.625 to something that more closely reflects the Treasury's cost of borrowing plus whatever the de minimis cost of CMS operationalizing the program is to basically just to hold the hold the government sort of harmless for the cost of running the program. And then, of course, the sixty four thousand dollar question is what's the outlook? Any that any that likely to actually come to be? You know, I know a couple of different associations and certainly groups of hospitals and health systems have asked for things that I've similar to what I've suggested. So there certainly is interest in the provider community. The HEROES Act, which is basically the fifth round of COVID relief legislation that passed the House this weekend, included language that would have modified the terms of the loan along the lines of what I just described. So it wouldn't forgive the loans, if you will, but it would certainly expand the period of time before CMS starts withholding funds. It would reduce the percentage of funds that CMS would withhold. 
and it would also tinker with the interest rates and provide for a longer payback period before CMS applies interest. Obviously, that was passed. It was a fairly partisan bill, so it was written by House Democrats with very little input from leaders in the Republican Party, either in the House or in the Senate or in the White House. So while I do think that there is a subsequent piece of CARES Act legislation that gets passed in the next four to six weeks, I'm not sure it's this exact bill, but this is certainly something to watch because this this feels to me like a provision that ultimately individuals from both parties could and should get behind. Right. So we will definitely be watching that and be reconnecting with you in the future to keep our listeners updated on it. But thanks a lot in the meantime for laying this subject out and potential solutions, Chad. All right, Rich, always great to talk with you. Of course, listeners can uh, get the latest uh, policy developments and practice developments on our news page located at hfma.org forward slash news. Hi, I'm Joe Pfeiffer, President and CEO of HFMA. Without question, we're living in uncertain times during this COVID-19 pandemic, and the amount of information online and in your inbox must be pretty overwhelming. HFMA is helping its members make sense of it all. We've set up a special page on our website to provide members with a consolidated view of COVID-19 news coverage and its effect on healthcare finance. Visit hfma.org, click Topics, then coronavirus. We also invite you to share your thoughts and concerns with other members in HFMA's community. Although many of us are practicing social distancing, we can lean on each other during this challenging time. This is a time to band together, and the entire HFMA staff is here to support you. In addition, I and the CEOs of ACHE, AMGA, MGMA, AAPL, and NAHQ have collaborated to sync up our resources. We're providing you the best resources we have available right now, collectively, to help you manage the evolving nature of COVID-19. We encourage you to visit the sites, and there'll be links on each other's sites on our websites, and use the information free of charge. We will be updating resources as we learn more. By working together, we will be better armed to advance the health and fulfill the missions that founded our great organizations. We're here for you. Let me end by thanking you for all that you do for your organization, for HFMA, and the healthcare industry at large. Thank you. There isn't much we can be 100% certain about when it comes to the coronavirus, but experts tend to agree that we won't have seen the last of it this summer. But we can also be sure that staying closed indefinitely is not an option. So in most places, the order of the day is a carefully orchestrated reopening effort. Recently, I talked with Terry Hush, CEO of Roji Health Intelligence, about what healthcare organizations should be talking about with patients and how to prepare for future waves of the virus. Everybody's talking right now about how to reopen and also handling the issue of patients who might be scared to come back for those elective procedures that have been put off for so long. But you say it's not just about telling people, hey, it's safe to come back. There's a lot of education and outreach about the care they need. So tell me about your thoughts on that. I guess I don't see the restarting of healthcare as something that is going to be even across all different populations, across all different specialties. 
And uh, there is this huge fear factor that's out there. Also, we've gone through a time where consumers have become more educated about healthcare. They've probably never seen so much healthcare information hitting them in the face as they have during the last couple of months. They've learned about science, about numbers, about the distinction between viruses and bacterial disease. They've seen graphs and charts. They understand about treatments. They understand about emerging treatments. And even if they haven't been news hogs like I've been and many people who are in healthcare have been, they've learned more about healthcare than they really ever thought of. They've also learned that maybe some things that were planned to be effective turned out not to be effective. Even the the first drugs that were touted as being effective or game changers, suddenly we're not talking about them anymore. We're talking about them negatively. So I think that one thing that needs to happen is that providers need to recognize this kind of increased literacy, increased understanding, and approach consumers with information about why they need to come in and what the trade-offs are for them to come in. When we have done this ramping up and phasing back to whatever you want to call new normal, I kind of hate that phrase, but it's, it's the thing that everybody's saying, we're hearing that there will almost certainly be future waves of this virus. So I don't want to get too deep into the weeds when it comes to the politics of all this, but the fact is that the information we're getting is different depending on who we listen to. So who do we listen to? How do we get good information that helps keep staff and patients safe, but doesn't mean that we stay locked down for the next six, eight, 12 months? I think the key information there are case counts and various infection numbers and hospitalizations and so on. And that's the information that's more vulnerable to politics and also misinterpretation or or changes, alterations in the numbers. I think that's the information that providers need to be able to gauge how they can prepare for waves of this. And we know that as soon as it starts opening up, there will be more infections. The healthcare industry certainly understands that. I'm not sure that consumers really completely understand that in all circles or that it doesn't hit just one group, like it doesn't hit just old people, or it doesn't just hit people in nursing homes, that there's risks to everybody. In some states, I think you will see good reporting of real case information, but providers are reporting this information to public entities, and it may behoove providers to start at least regionally collecting and creating intermediate sources of that information themselves, trading information about case counts or or distributing that to people before things start to really ramp up because they can't afford to become unaware of what's really happening with the surge in cases as they're trying to protect themselves. Now, I do think that the scientific community, the research community in particular, but increasingly so clinicians are starting to share a lot of information. And that holds some really good channels to keep up and maybe perhaps formalize more than we have done in the past. In the past, there's been more of a, we're doing this bit of research, you're doing that bit of research, and it'll go on to publication. And it's been more of a competitive environment than it has been collaborative in a lot of ways. 
So if we see the opportunity to share information on various clinical treatments, which will involve a number of cases, and make that whole research environment more open and transparent for both providers and consumers, that would be a great outcome to come from this so that we're not gravitating towards the latest news, but we are being informed continually about what's happening out in this environment. How does technology play a part in getting us to a place where we can all get the health care we need without putting someone at unnecessary risk? Well, technology is going to be essential in trying to differentiate between populations who are at risk of the deferral of their care. So cases where they've been in treatment or they have significant risk factors that has been deferred. We've seen it happen in cancer. We've seen it happen in heart, diabetes. I mean, across the board, uh, I don't know exactly what's happened to the patients who are going into dialysis all the time, but I've heard of disruptions in that kind of care regimen too. So the big role that technology has to play, number one, is to identify those patients and help providers put them into a queue to be able to serve them to do outreach, to do surveillance, to do monitoring. The COVID-19 infected population is also a new population that's going to require surveillance as time goes on because we know that there have been significant factors that have changed in the biology of those infected individuals. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Please check out our webinars. We have several coming up with topics you'll want to hear about, such as managing a large self-pay population, optimizing AR, mitigating privacy and security risks, and more. And if there's anything you want to hear about on our podcast, please reach out. We're at podcast at hfma.org. Okay, let's get a roll.